Remember those earlier days, after you had received the light, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And, but my righteous one will live by faith, and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what, is, what was visible. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it's impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful, who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, 
for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, and so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he'd grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be ill-treated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. We, uh, we believe as a, a gospel-centred church that the Bible is true, it's God's word to us. So a lot of our time is spent um, praying about the Bible, listening to the Bible, and then having the Bible explained. That's what I'm going to do now, uh, and I would dearly love for you to have uh, our service sheet on your lap. Uh, page three and into page four would be helpful, just so you can check what I'm saying, please, against what's in the Bible. I also don't have a hedgehog today. Um, he was yesterday's uh, character teaching us about Bartimaeus. If you don't know what I'm talking about, ask someone who was at the Globe Party. We've been journeying through a book of Hebrews. It's uh, a book of intense pastoral counselling, is what we've been saying for it week by week. It's, it's very intense because the people to whom the letter was first written were struggling with a number of things. The reason our reading was a little bit segmented today was because it's a picture that's surrounded by a frame. On the side of our fridge at home, there's a number of photos, but when we started taking on this huge building project to take something that's old and dilapidated, that's not me, that's our house, and, and put it into some order, we wrote a list together. We're nearly at the end of a list. And at the end of the list, it says, get photos, put them up. So we ordered photos. We went to Ikea on Tuesday, sorry, Monday. We ordered frames. Photos are now going into frames. Frames are now going to go up on the wall. In Hebrews 11, we have a photo that's surrounded by a frame that explains why Hebrews 11 is so important for us to understand. Let me show you the frame. Chapter 10, verse 32. The people to whom this letter was written, the reason why they need to understand these women and men of faith from the Old Testament, it doesn't matter if you don't understand their names, 
is because of what they were experiencing. Here's the photo frame. Chapter 10, sentence verse 32. The people for whom this letter was new news were suffering. It says that in chapter 10, verse 32. Recall the former days. You are now experiencing hard struggle. You're suffering. Here's the second part of the frame, sentence 33. The very next sentence. They're experiencing suffering, but also shame. Public reproach. People are mocking them, teasing them, um, lambasting them, because they are Christians, and they are struggling. But here's the other side of the frame, which chapter 11 sits in. Chapter 12 and sentence verse 1. Sticky sin. Three S's. The, uh, the preacher Dick Lucas, the Christian minister Dick Lucas said, there are three S's that help you understand Hebrews chapter 11 that make this picture frame. There is suffering, 10 verse 32. There is shame, 10 verse 33. And then chapter 12 verses 1 to 3, there's sticky sin that the Christians were struggling with. And the writer wants to say, how are you going to stand firm for Jesus as you suffer, Daniel and Catherine? How are you going to stand firm for Jesus when as you tell your friends about Jesus, they laugh at you? How will you stand firm for Jesus as you and I struggle with sin that sticks to us a bit like glue before Jesus returns? The only way that you will persevere, chapter 11, verse 1, is if you are women and if you are men of faith. Now let me tell you what faith is about. It's the key to perseverance, says the author. We're all people of faith. But biblical, Christ-centered, life-transforming faith has four ingredients from this passage. It's, it's rational, sentence 1 to 3 of Hebrews 11. It's personal, that's verses 4 to 8 of Hebrews 11. It's foundational, that's verse 9 and 10 of Hebrews 11. And it's full of grace, that's verse 13 and following. Four things. Let's have a look at each one. Faith. Well, faith is rational. Faith is rational. That sentence is 1 to 3 of Hebrews 11. Faith is more, but it's not less, than rational thinking. It says that in verse 6. Without faith, no one will see God. You need to have faith. You need to have biblical faith to get a grasp of the world and the way it is. Unseen realities, the existence of God and the power of God, help us to understand what we see with our physical eyes, what we taste and enjoy like a cock's apple. That's remarkable that you can only enjoy in October and November. The beauty of a flower, the warmth of the sun, how are these glorious things, how have they come to be? Sentences 1, 2 and 3 tell us how we can grasp what we see and feel and taste and touch with our physical senses. Verse 1, now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. The word certain means to validate through evidence. Being a Christian, being a woman or a man, a boy or a girl of faith, does not mean that your brain is left at the door. It does not mean that you're searching through, looking for something, hopefully, wistfully, that God may be there, but you can't be sure or certain. No, these sentences tell us being a Christian ha is having a rock-solid, a concrete certainty that makes sense of what you see and touch and smell and taste 
because of the reality of what is unseen that the Bible tells us and explains to us. It's a, it's a validating through evidence. And then in verse 3, sentence number 3, it says, by faith we understand. That's another word, like certain, in sentence number 1, that means to be confident, that means to reason, that means to understand what we see and experience in this world by what we can be confident about and we need to see through the eyes of faith. It's a reasoning word. It's a thinking word. So maybe, sentence one, two, and three, you could say in this way. Faith, biblical faith, is thinking and reasoning so that we can understand all that we see in the world and that it was not made by itself. There must be a supernatural reason to the world in which we live. There must be an unseen reality that we cannot see now with our physical eyes, but we know has to be there for the world to exist in all its beauty and self-sustainability, so we think. It's a bit like a radio. I love the radio, and I remember an illustration by a Catholic philosopher called Alistair McIntyre, who says, faith is a bit like a radio. Now, you might like the radio, you may not. But just imagine you have a radio in front of you. And you kind of say, how do I know if this is a good radio or not? Well, first of all, you need to ask a previous question, which is, what does a radio do, yeah? A radio is a good radio. It functions appropriately if it takes, and I need to read this because I'm not very good at science, if it takes radio waves and makes them audible. That's the job of a radio. It takes radio waves that go through the, uh, the universe and around the sky and the solar system that we can't see, and it makes them audible to our ears. If a radio does that, it's a good radio. It may not look like mine, it may look different, it may have pretty flowers on the outside, it may be jet black, whatever it looks like. If a radio does what it's made for, then it's a good radio. You may have that radio and say, well, actually, it doesn't work to hammer in nails very well. It kind of cracks kind of easily. You might think, okay, it's not very good when I'm making a cake and I stir the batter with my radio, because that's not what it's made for. But here's the thing. If you look into the world without understanding the purpose and the power behind it, you'll never be able to understand and perceive by faith the reason for its existence. It's God's handiwork on display. It's made by a word of his power, sentence number three. It takes faith to understand not the power of a radio, but the function of the world as it points to God. But in the world, we see the reality of unseen powers that point us to a creator God. Faith is rational. It's not a leap of faith. It's looking at the evidence and saying there must be a reason behind this. There must be a power. There must be a creator. Faith is rational. Faith is also personal. Sentences four to eight. Faith is also personal. Look at sentence seven. By faith Noah. By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, or it may say, by faith Noah warned about things to come. His Noah, he's looking at an unseen reality and it changes his life. It becomes personal to him. And so what did he do? Verse 7, in holy fear he built an ark. 
Noah saw something and it changed his life. Sentence number eight. Now we meet Abraham. By faith, Abraham, this man from the Old Testament, like Noah, when called to go to a place that he would later receive as an inheritance, he obeyed and he went, though he did not know where he was going. Here we see again, faith is not a lack of thinking, it's not a lack of conviction, it's not a lack of reasoning, it's not a lack of brain power, it's not an emotional crutch. It's seeing something that is unseen and it's changing your life. It's rational, but it's also personal. Let me prove it to you. Look at verse 8. We meet a man called Abraham. He came from Ur of the Chaldeans. That's modern-day Iraq. He came from Iraq. It was a fertile place. It was a fantastic place. He was a wealthy man. He knew security and safety. He knew prosperity and happiness. He was a moon worshipper until God came into his life and changed him. Something disturbed him, and it was God who put his hand and his call on his life, and it changed him forever. And so the next thing you know, he's leaving his, uh, his uh, modern-day palace life because he was a wealthy man, and he's running off into the wilderness. Now, why would he do that? Why would he leave everything behind? Because God came into his life. Look at sentence 23. Now we meet a character called Moses. Moses, Moses, uh, he's doing really well. He's the prince of Egypt. That's a great name for a film. The world is his oyster. He's got servants. He's got wine on tap. He's got a great re <laughs> kind of retirement fund. He's got everything you could want in this world, but it's not enough. And so the next thing you know, God comes into his life, and this wealthy man, who's second in command for the whole of Egypt, early on in his life, before that happened, he's, he's identifying with the poor, with the outcasts, with the lowly. How does that happen? Because God came into Noah's life. God came into Abraham's life. It's a personal encounter with God. Verse 7, verse 8, verse 23. It's God coming in saying, Faith is rational, but faith is also much more than that. It's also personal. It's not one or the other, it's both. And God is saying, I want you personally. And so he speaks to both people, and he puts his hand on his life, and he turns them round. It's the reality of faith. Now, you might kind of want to think about, well, how did that happen? When does that happen? When God puts his call on someone's life, a woman or a man, a boy or a girl... Both people, Moses, Noah, and Abraham, and other people in this chapter, begin to evaluate what they're living for. They begin to think about what they're going to die leaving behind. They begin to think about if money can bring true happiness, like Moses. They begin to think about what true security is, like Abraham. They begin to think about the judgment of God, like Noah, and it changed his life, because he wanted to escape it. It begins to affect what you're studying for. It begins to affect what you're making money for. And when God puts his call on your life through faith that's rational but also personal, it puts you on a different path. There was once a man called Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was, as his name and title suggests, a doctor. And when he was a Christian man, a young man, pursuing medicine in central London, one night, a friend of his knocked on the door. He was 20 years his senior, 
and he was involved in a serious relationship with a lady friend. They were, in all probability, going to get engaged, and marriage was on the horizon. There had been a tragedy in this man's life, and his future fiance had died. Two men sat in front of the fire for two hours and didn't say a word to each other. And in that moment, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was going up the career path as a Christian man, who wanted to be a surgeon that people could look to for help and healing, he said, as he wrote in his journal the next day, this experience shook me to my core. I saw the vanity of all human greatness, and I realized that all the success in all the world, all the status in the world, all the education in the world, all the money in the world, was insufficient to face life. He sat beside his friend who was at the top of his profession, who just lost a loved one, and it was all vanity, just like a mist. He wasn't looking at his friend as an object of weakness or a weakling or anything like that. But as the two men looked at this fire together for two hours, the penny dropped for Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he left medicine behind, and he became a Christian minister, because he didn't just want to help people physically, he wanted to point them to someone who could help them spiritually and eternally. He saw something with his eyes of the heavenly reality, and God placed his call on his life, just as he had done for Moses, for Abraham, for Noah, and these other heroes of faith in this photo frame. These few verses that tell us about the rationality of faith and the personal nature of faith affected Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and I pray that they will affect you as they've affected me. It's not enough, as we say, to know about God in a general way, like Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones did. He was a Christian man. But through that experience with his friend, his knowledge of God became real and personal and close. God placed a call in his life and it turned him around. Because Abraham had everything. Moses had everything the world could offer. But when God came close to them, when God called them, as he did Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, it was really an either-or moment. When God speaks to you through the Bible, when God comes close to you, it's either an either or moment. There's no other foundations that you can stand on. If you respond to God as you hear his voice in all integrity, you realize that actually there's only one way to respond. He's either God or he's not. He either deserves absolutely everything or he's a God who can command absolutely nothing from me. It really is an either or. But faith begins when you rationally engage with the data that there must be more to life than this. And faith begins when you hear a personal call from God into your very heart. Faith is rational and personal. It's also foundational. Thirdly, it's foundational. Look at sentence eight again. What do I mean by faith is foundational? By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, he obeyed and he went even though he did not know where he was going. For older friends, 
He didn't even know whether he was going, I think it says in the old authorised version. Let me summarise Abraham's life in about a sentence or two for you. God comes in Genesis chapter 12 and speaks to Abraham and says, I want you to go out not knowing where you're going. God says, get out of here. Get out from your security and safety, your prosperity from your palace. Go. You're a wealthy man, but go. Abraham says, where? I'll tell you later. Just go. God comes to Abraham a second time. Abraham, I want you to settle down. When? I'll tell you later. Just keep going. God says, I'm going to give you a son. Abraham says, how? I'm 99 years old. My wife is 90 years old. God says, I'll tell you later. Just wait. Finally, God comes to Abraham and says, take your only son. The son whom you love and take him to the top of the mountain and I want you to sacrifice him there. And Abraham says, why? And God says, I'll tell you later. Just keep going up the mountain. In sentence 10, in verse 10, it says that Abraham was looking for a city with foundations. Friends, as I was reflecting on this this week, it just prompted my affections to say that this world has absolutely no foundations. Abraham had it all, didn't he? And yet God says, get out, and I will show you a city in the future that has permanent and lasting foundations. I think it's the second or maybe the third law of uh, thermodynamics that says the whole world is disintegrating. Everything is slowing down. Everything is sagging. Everything is expanding. Everything is wilting. If you live long enough, you go through that stage of life when people who are above you die, and then your colleagues die, and then people beneath you in age die. If you live long enough, you will see that death is our ultimate enemy. And nothing in this world is sufficient to build your life on as a foundation. Your career is not strong enough. Your family life, well, the family will leave you eventually. The person you love, if you don't die before them, you will die. If you build your life on your looks, they won't last, even if you have injections and a nip and tuck here and there. This world has no foundations emotionally, psychologically, Educational is limited. There's no, nothing physical, nothing weighty enough that will take our weight of expectations as a foundation. And Abraham could see that. So what God did to Abraham, to Moses, to Noah, to Cain, to Abel, to these other people throughout this chapter, women and men, is that by his grace, God will do whatever it takes to show the foundation that we're building our life upon and he will show that it cannot take the weight that we put upon it. And that's a gracious thing he's doing. Over and over again, think of Abraham. God takes him into places that expose the foundation that he's basing his security on. And he says it can't take the weight. Oh, it's your son, the son whom you love. Even him, don't build your life on him. But he points to someone greater. Because God wants us to loosen our grip on the security of the things that we build our life upon so that only when we see that he is sufficient, that his promises are the foundation that we can build a life upon, that his character is sufficient, that his word is true enough, only when we obey him and leave everything else behind will we see that he's enough for us, says verse 10 and the story of Abraham. 
Everything else is shifting sand. But when it comes to God and his word and his promises, they will take the weight that we can put upon them. Because faith is rational. Faith is personal. But faith from sentence 10, as Abraham looked to the city, the foundation that he could live and take to the bank, enabled him to get out of his comfort zone. It enabled him to trust God and take him at his word. Because that city's foundations are eternal and unshakable and lasting and permanent. Because faith, you see, well, it's rational, it's personal, it's foundational, but it's also graceful. Last point. Faith is also graceful. Years before Hebrews was written, Abraham had the same question that you and I may have. Because I've just said to you that faith is foundational and nothing else can take the weight of expectation. Nothing else will, well, everything else will let us down, but God won't. And you say, okay, but for me to take God at his word, is God trustworthy enough? Will he come through for me? Is he, will his promises stand? Well, Abraham had the same question, not in Genesis chapter 12, but in Genesis chapter 15. In Genesis chapter 15, Abraham asks the same question. God, do you want me to get out? you want me to leave Ur? you want me to leave my palace and security and prosperity and blessing? And you want me to go somewhere? How do I know that I can trust you? How do I know that you'll be there for me? How do I know that you're true to your word? And God, by his grace, takes Moses and puts him into a deep sleep and says, I will make a covenant with you. Go to sleep and take some animals before you go to sleep and make a pathway because I'm going to make a covenant with you the way they did in the ancient Near East, which was two people would make promises to one another, and they would say, we're going to say these words as you and I walk through this alleyway of animals that have been cut in two. And as we say these covenant promises to one another, if either one of us breaks the covenant, well, we're going to be ripped apart, just like these animals. It was symbolism. It was a covenant. It was legal. And in Genesis chapter 15, as Abraham is saying, God, how can I trust you? If I'm going to follow you, how do I know that you're trustworthy? There are two surprises. Surprise number one is that God goes through the pieces. Surprise number two, Abraham does not go through the pieces. And Abraham, through faith, can see what that symbolically means. Abraham could see, if I don't keep up my end of the bargain... God will pay the penalty for me. God will be torn to pieces for me. If I don't keep my end of the bargain, and I won't because I'm faithless and fickle, God will pay the penalty. I'm not quite sure how, but somehow God will do it because he walked through the pieces and I didn't. He said the promises and I didn't. And in John chapter 8, in the Gospel of John, it says, Abraham rejoiced to see the day. He was looking back but he was looking forward to one who would come. And look down at verse 13. It says here, These people, Abraham, Noah, latterly Moses, these people were still living by faith when they died. They were looking forward. They did not receive the things promised, but they welcomed them from afar. Friends, here's the challenge. If faith is rational and personal, if it's foundational, and that will mean for some of you leaving something that you've built your life upon. Friends, if 
these people could make these huge sacrifices of building an ark, a big boat in the desert, and people were calling them crazy. If Noah could do that, if Moses could leave all the security behind, if Moses could leave all the palaces of Egypt behind with all the wealth, because he was looking forward to a city and foundations that were eternal and secure, and they didn't even receive anything they were looking. Friends, what about you and me who look back? and we can see so much more. They were looking forward for one who would come. They were rejoicing to see the day when Jesus would come, a rescuer would come. If they were in anticipation of this grace and promise, how much more can God ask from us who look back and can see it? Surely there's nothing he can't ask of us if we look at the cross and can understand what happened. What do I mean? Abraham got out, he had security and comfort. Moses had the security of Egypt and the the armed guard around him, but he cared for the poor. But friends, think about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, did he not have the ultimate security? He had the ultimate resources of the heavenly hosts. He had the securest palace, not of this world, but of the true reality in heaven. And yet God the Father said to God the Son, If those people on earth will be saved, if they will be rescued, my son, you're going to have to get out. You're going to have to leave behind the security and safety, the uh, prosperity that you enjoy. You're going to have to lay aside your glory. You're going to have to lay aside your invulnerability, not as a superhero, but as the Trinity himself. It will be ripped apart on the cross. Jesus, my son, you're going to have to get out and rescue those people. He heard the ultimate call from God the Father and he got out. He left the ultimate security and he went on the most dangerous journey we ever know to the cross. Friends, if Jesus has done that as we look back, not forward, we look back in faith, isn't there anything he can ask of us? Grace received, not just grace anticipated. Jesus says, I got out of my security zone, I got out and I was crushed and I did it for you and I did it for me. And friends, when we know that, there's nothing God cannot ask of us and that's scary. We can leave money aside. If we're building our life on that, we can leave our family. We look at our family in a new way. We look at our work in a new way. We look at our future in a new way. If we grasp hold of Jesus Christ crucified for us, Because when God calls us and he can ask anything of us, it's unconditional what he asked of Moses and Abraham and Noah. It's scary because you're going out into uncharted territory. Just tell me where I'm going, says Abraham. No, just go, I'll tell you later. Just go and I'll tell you later. Friends, you may not know where you're going if you are obedient to the call of God, but you do know the one whom you're traveling with. Don't say that lightly but you're going with the one who gave everything for you. So there is absolutely nothing to worry about. And Daniel and Catherine need to hear that afresh, and so do we. You will experience times of suffering. Remember the frame. You will experience slander. People will laugh at you if you stand up for Jesus and say, there is a reality that you cannot see, and I'm living for that, and I can't wait to see Jesus, which means I don't do this and that and the other, but I do want to do that with my life. You will battle with sticky sin. So how will you keep going? It's by faith. And faith is rational. 
Faith is personal and it changes your foundation. But remember who you're journeying with. Let's pray. Father, you never leave us and you promise to never forsake us. And it's scary to think because you gave everything for us in Jesus, there's nothing you cannot ask of us. So help me, help each one of us to be obedient to the call that you place on our lives because of who you are. And help us to be obedient and to trust you as we seek to follow you all of our days. Father, for those of us that are not yet Christians, I do pray that you would help us to see that becoming a Christian is not a leap in the dark, but it is a, a leap into the light, and it's standing on a sure foundation that will never fail. Please help us to grasp you afresh, and that you've come to seek and to save the lost like us. Amen.